was out in the foyer there earlier this morning talking with um, Morris and Lynn, and we're just talking about the, the message, and because I'm all wired up, and they said, are oh, you doing the message this morning, Miles? And I said, yeah. And um, then we got chatting, and who's heard of Angus Buchan? America, uh, South African preacher? Yeah, he, he uh, had one of his farmers, a corn farmer, he uh, said to Angus um, one day, he said, you know, I really feel that God uh, wants me to preach in church. And Angus said, oh, you need to go and pray about that. So he, off he went and he, he went into one of his uh, cornfields and uh, he laid down one day in his cornfield and he looked up in the sky and he, he saw some clouds and uh, he saw them, three letters, GPC. And he thought, yeah, that's a sign from God, go preach at church. So he went to Angus and said, God's given me a sign, go preach at church. So off he went, and Angus said, yeah, okay, you can go preach at church. So he preached at church that Sunday, and Angus pulled him aside later and said, it wasn't go preach at church, it was go plant corn. So, <laughs> so Morris said to me this morning, he said, Miles, if it doesn't tick the box, I'll just go like that, okay? <laughs> so we'll see how we go this morning. Anyway, on a, on a more serious note, uh, Rosalind and I would just like to pass on our, our Thanks and gratitude for your kind words and thoughts and prayers as we said farewell to Rosalind's dad this week. Nev, thank you so much for your, for your warm hearts and uh, your kindness to us. We really appreciate that. So this morning as we come into, the, into our message, uh, Claire gave us the Bible reading Exodus 1, 1-14. But before we do, we have some questions up on the board. So what are you going to learn today? What's God going to say to you in your heart and what are you going to do? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, for today and this time of worship. We can, we can just come into your house to, to present afresh our hearts to you and our love for you. And thank you, Father, for your love for us that we've just shared around communion and be able to just come into your presence afresh today. We thank you for your word and we just pray, Lord, that as we uh, delve into this time together today, around your word, that you will speak into our lives and into our hearts and into our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to begin with a short two-minute video to explain where we are up to. So uh, I'll just put it, put it up and see how we go. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and they filled the land. Now this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. 
But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. So that's pretty much where we're up to, and we're just going to hang our hat there for today. And Steve will continue the story next week. So this Pharaoh guy was a nasty dude, and our scripture passage today tells us the Israelites were quite oppressed. They were oppressed under his rule. Verse 12, but the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more quickly the Israelites multiplied. The Egyptians soon became alarmed and decided to make their slavery more bitter still. They were ruthless with the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks and mortar and to work long hours in the fields. Now, Steve rostered me on uh, to bring this message today with this passage in the title, Dealing with Oppression. I have to admit that it's been a challenge in preparing this, so I hope it's not a GPC moment. Uh, but my hope is that the Holy Spirit will work with us and in us today as I share. Now, just because... We are part of a movement of God does not mean that we are exempt from suffering, persecution and pain. A statement to share with you as we begin this morning is up on the screen. God may even choose to take his favour, his revival, his blessing and turn them in completely unexpected directions, leaving his people to question and endure tremendous disappointment. And we see that today through the Israelites' oppression. So, for the rubber to hit the road this morning in today's passage, we need, I believe, to define what is oppression. So I went to the Oxford Dictionary, always a good start. And oppression is a noun. It is the treatment of people in a cruel and unfair way and not giving them the same freedom, rights, etc. as other people. So I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll take that with us today because I think that's a fair definition and we'll go with that one and I would surmise actually that we have all been at some point in our lives been treated cruelly and unfairly whether it is in fact or by our own opinion either way we have to deal with it somehow this is a tough one I mean there's words such as anger there's fight there's runaway there's sadness there's hopelessness there's discouragement faith and doubt, they're just a few words that come to my mind when we're dealing with oppression or under oppression. But you might have some other words. But how do we deal with oppression biblically when it does come our way? So let me begin this morning by acquainting you with a term you may not have heard of or not be familiar with. And that is a term called blind sight. Now, blind sight is a phenomenon where at times a person who is blind still has a sense of what is happening around them. Somehow that is possible. 
Now, don't misunderstand what blindsight is. It's not a reference to the other senses becoming more heightened, and blindsight is not a learned behaviour over time, okay? For instance, why is it that if you are asleep and someone silently enters your room, you can often sense they are in there? Or why is it that when you feel like someone is staring at you, you're walking down the street and you turn your head, you think someone's staring at you, and they're staring at you? Who's had that type of experience? Now, there are no medical or physiological or psychological explanations for these occurrences or for blindsight. But somehow those who do not have visual eyesight, when they are tested, can at times predict where something is located. So this morning, to give a foundational, I guess, um, perspective for us to work with here in understanding on dealing with oppression... We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, and this is known as the faith chapter. You see, there's something that we can't physically see, and yet this room here this morning is filled with people who have experienced it. I'm talking about faith. Faith is something we can't see in front of us, yet we have experienced it. And to me, this is blindsight in action. So let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Very popular verse, and we all probably know this one. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is where we're going to go foundationally here this morning. Faith is being sure of what we can't see. There may be no medical or psychological explanation for it, but as we grow in our understanding of faith, we learn there is a spiritual and logical explanation for our faith. And you know what? When it comes to faith, many today are quite sceptical of Christianity. They are sceptical of God's word. Can God really provide a peace that passes all understanding? Is that possible when I'm struggling with doubt or facing disappointment? particularly if under some kind of oppression. The Israelites, I believed, whilst oppressed, would have at times really questioned their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Would they have held feelings of doubt and discouragement during that time? I'm sure they would have. If we are honest, we'd admit that even within this room here today, There are many who would say their faith isn't as strong right now due to the discouragement they might be experiencing. And the reasons for those feelings may be very different. It might be because you're new to faith, so it's just in the process of being matured and developed a little bit more. Nothing wrong with that. We all have to start somewhere. It may be because your faith has never been tried or tested. For others, we may have a faith under review, so to speak, due to some circumstances that seem to be pressing in upon us. Can I say that when oppressed, our faith as followers of Jesus is under attack. And I'm sure the Israelites would have felt that their faith was under attack during that time of oppression by Pharaoh and those around him. So where do we go? How do we look at this? So to help to deal with oppression, I want to embark 
on a little bit of a journey with you. This morning we're going to look into two reasons that tend to initially diminish our faith. And that is doubt and discouragement. Some doubt God's power and personal involvement in our lives. For others, there is discouragement over some circumstance they've experienced or maybe some tragedy that's caused them to question their beliefs. In both cases, the result is that our faith is shaken. Now, I'm sure at some point in your life's journey, your faith has been shaken somewhere. Perhaps not shattered, but just shaken. At times, we all face some formidable foes that can foil one's faith. And fair income oppression is up there at the top of the list. And it's one of Satan's strategies to diminish our faith, to diminish our walk with our Lord. So let's divide this into two sections this morning, two sections. We're going to look at overcoming doubt and overcoming discouragement or disappointment. Let's see together how faith can be strengthened and allow us to overcome these obstacles to great difficulty. So first one, overcoming doubt. Atheist-turned-Christian author Lee Strobel writes this. There is no doubt about it, he says. Doubt scares many Christians. They stare into the darkness at night, pestered by vague uncertainties and persistent questions that make them feel anxious and vulnerable, almost as if they were experiencing spiritual vertigo. So from the outset, let's acknowledge this morning there will be some times when doubt creeps in to our faith. Please, please know that that's okay. Some would even go so far as to say they believe that doubt is necessary for faith to develop. Let's go back to Hebrews 11, verses 1, and I'll extend that reading right through to verse 3. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. The Hebrew writer here was challenging those Christians to have their eyes opened to what they couldn't see. How are you going with that? To start looking for evidence where maybe they had missed it before. A pastor by the name of Stephen Brown once said, if you've never had a question about your faith, you probably don't have much faith. We are especially vulnerable to doubt if we don't know what it is that we believe, let alone why we believe it. So the key this morning, the key is whether the doubt that you may experience from time to time because of things that come across your way that are difficult, trying to understand is God in this or or where is my God? The key is whether the doubt leads to belief or unbelief. Most Christians think doubt is the opposite of faith. But that's not true. And this is an important distinction you need to make. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. 
Being a Christian means that at times we will have some doubts to work through. A faith that has never been tested cannot be trusted. An oak tree, for example, doesn't grow strong if it never encounters wind, storms and elements. It is adversity that allows it to grow, to strengthen and to flourish. So does our faith. I'll just throw a picture up on the screen and and sometimes or most of the time we want the straight smooth line, don't we? That's what our plan, yeah, we want that. But in reality, life is often that bottom line, that the bottom, bottom part of the picture. You're going along, trees, there's, there's, there's all these challenges that, that life throws at us. It's not a smooth sailing line downhill even. It doesn't work like that. You may recall when John the Baptist is rotting in a prison cell. Quite an oppressive time, really. While Jesus is out preaching to the crowds, notice that John just doesn't sit and sulk. He didn't just have some philosophical debate with the disciples. He sent word to Jesus and had his friends ask a question in Luke 7 verse 19. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Doubt should drive you to go on a spiritual search for truth. Now, when Jesus was questioned by by John the Baptist with his friends delivering the note and told that John wants to know if Jesus really is the Messiah, I want you to listen to Jesus' response. But first of all, Jesus didn't say, Come on, John. You were there at my baptism. You heard the voice of the Heavenly Father, yet you questioned my identity. What are you going on about? He didn't say that. And he didn't say, you know the Old Testament prophecies and saw me fulfilling them, yet you doubt. Gee, where's John? Jesus didn't say that. Instead of taking him to task for his questions and doubt, Jesus said, and he simply acknowledged and said to John, Luke seven twenty eight, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's it. Simply. Acknowledge John. It's okay for us to go through a brief season of wrestling with the hard questions of life. John the Baptist was honest about his doubt. But you know what? Not everyone is. Some claim a belief in Christianity because they don't want to rock the boat. They pretend to believe and just kind of fake the whole church thing because they don't want to upset their parents or anger Christian friends. But later, when their faith is challenged by maybe, I don't know, a scoffing professor, unjust suffering, oppressive workplace or even disappointment in a spiritual leader, their weakened spiritual foundation may then begin to crumble. How strong is your faith foundation this morning? Since we don't have Jesus in the flesh in our day, the Lord has left us a written record, his word, the Bible. There's no better place to look to understand God and his plan for us and no better place to look to get a clearer picture of Jesus than in the pages of the Bible. The Apostle John 
begs for doubters to examine the evidence. How so, you might say, Miles? What's, what's, what's that all about? Well, John 20, verse 31, John exclaims this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Written in God's word. Your job is to believe. Search, find it, come and see. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Evangelist and teacher Oswald Chambers, best known for the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, said this, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign, I like this, that he's thinking. In John the Baptist's case, his inquiry was not born of willful unbelief, but of doubt nourished by physical and emotional strain while he was rotting in prison. Okay. Let's go. There are two types of doubters, dishonest doubters and also honest doubters. Dishonest doubters don't want to believe. It's a doubt of convenience. You might know some of these people in your workplace or wherever. If we don't believe, then we don't have to change our behaviour. I heard someone say, an atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. Most atheists and agnostics aren't searching for God. In Jeremiah 29.13, the Lord offers assurance that if you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him. But the truth is, many don't want to find God because it means they will have to change their life. People don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Having a casual friendship with Jesus but not allowing him to change us goes beyond honest doubt. You know what? It's rejection. Like the Pharisees did with Jesus, dishonest doubters ask questions only to try and trap. They are not looking for answers, really. They are merely trying to support their lack of belief. If a person says, I'm not sure I believe but never investigates the claims of Christianity, never studies the Bible, never goes to church, never fellowships with Christian people, never... And basically, I believe their doubt is self-imposed. To me, that's dishonest doubt because they aren't truly in search of truth. But there's also honest doubt, okay? These doubters ask questions because they want to learn what is truth. Throughout the Gospels, you see the words, three words, come and see. It was constantly mentioned, come and see, come and see. Check it out. Check out who this Jesus is. The disciples checked it out and they followed him. Come and see. And that's what John the Baptist did. He wants to know the evidence that is out there, rather than only listening to the whispers of the devil. And talking about that bloke, the devil, just remember, he is the father of lies. And he will try and get you off centre any which way he can. But God always loves taking that which Satan intends for evil and using it for good. And if your doubts and questions lead you to deeper study, 
then it will inspire you and give you an assurance that Satan himself can't shake. So what I say there is sometimes you might be reading from a certain page and it's the one that Satan gives you. You need to flip it and read from a different page in your life. Go to God's word for that. The Bible gives a warning and encouragement to those whose faith is solid and strong. Is your faith solid and strong? Amen to that. But he gives a warning to you if your faith is solid and strong. And it's found in Jude 1, verse 22. And it says, be merciful to those who doubt. Why? Why is that? Over the years, I've learnt this to be so true. And here's why. Because, and I believe many of you here in this room would testify to this as well. If you're patient with honest doubters, in time they can become the strongest believers. I saw that many a time in the prison ministry as broken men did not believe in God, came to the Lord Jesus Christ. They became the strongest believers. Amen. Now, please don't miss this one. When you are feeling oppressed and the doubt creeps in, those who doubt can't just swim in that pool forever. The doubter must take some steps. If you want to remove the darkness of doubt from your soul, you have to go where the light shines, don't you? Read literature that nurtures your faith. Take classes from from respected believers. Ask questions. Rock solid doing that this morning. One question they're asking there, who is God? Spend the weekends regularly attending worship. Associate with people who have a genuine faith. Most important of all, read the evidence in the scriptures. Those steps can help you overcome doubt. So let's quickly move into the second point this morning. Overcoming discouragement slash disappointment. We all face discouragement and disappointment. Jesus told us in John 16.33 that we would have trials and tribulations and that things wouldn't always go our way. (laughs) And he wasn't lying, was he? Countless individuals have been through incredible pain, but they don't allow a diagnosis, a divorce or death or someone they love to define how they live. Instead, they face their disappointment, draw closer to God and lean on their faith in the midst of trial. Now, can I say this morning that challenges, the disappointments and suffering, you know what, it will either drive you to the Lord or from the Lord. Which way are you going to take that? How are you going to respond? That's up to you. Perhaps the discouragements and disappointments you're facing have begun to disillusion you in your view of God. Maybe you prayed for a healthy baby as your friends have, but you aren't able to get pregnant or your baby has a disability. Perhaps you have lost a child and you look toward heaven and say, Lord, don't you understand? The parent is supposed to precede the child in death, not vice versa. Why do we live in a world of suffering, disappointing days and painful nights? Perhaps because God wants to teach us his truth. There is a greater good that comes out of disappointment. Paul talks about it in one of his books that he wrote, Romans 8. It will probably sound familiar to you. This is a great chapter to read if you're going through a difficult season. 
It will remind you of the big picture, the eternal picture. Let me call two verses to your attention this morning. First, Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Read it many times. I encourage you to etch these, these words in your heart so when you go through a difficult season, God's word can remind you that your temporary, and I underline that in my notes, temporary afflictions are no comparison to what God has in store of, for you. People quote it a lot when they're facing struggles and they need the hope that comes from the scriptures. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There is a greater good that can come out of suffering. God in his infinite wisdom knows that suffering matures us. His spirit who lives inside every Christian is able to comfort and sustain us. Walk with that if you're in that space. Through our suffering, you can relate to Jesus. You're connecting to Jesus. And the more you look like Jesus, the more people will be attracted to Christianity. So there's purpose in all of this too. There is a greater good that comes out of suffering. And you know what? It has to be a part of the recipe that makes us like Jesus. If our goal in this life is to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow into his image, and I pray that that is your goal in each and every one of you, and if suffering becomes part of the recipe to accomplish this, then rather than questioning God, we should thank God and trust and trust that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, This is really hard, eh, at times. Sometimes we do it well, and sometimes we don't do it real well at all. So whatever you have faced or are facing, discouragement, disappointment, it doesn't mean it's the end. Just remember this, that never place a period, a boom, a full stop, where God intended there to be a comma. Let's move on. This isn't the end. Your pain and trial isn't the final chapter. We have hope because of Jesus, and that hope extends beyond this world, as Paul mentioned this morning. Following Jesus doesn't mean you'll get the promotion at work, or you'll find that special someone, or you'll never be diagnosed with a disease. Jesus himself tells us to expect challenges, but he promises to walk beside us and be there for us. Max Lucado in his book, You'll Get Through This, he writes this. Great words of wisdom. God hasn't forgotten you, just the opposite. He has chosen to train you. The Hebrew verb for test comes from a word that means to take a keen look at, to look, to choose. Dismiss the notion that God does not see your struggle, quite the contrary. God is fully engaged, Max says. He sees the needs of tomorrow and accordingly uses your circumstances to create the test of today. Don't see your struggle as an interruption to life, but as preparation for life. Now, I often told many a prisoner who I visited in jail as a chaplain that, and and this could be the thing you take with today, with you. To get through, we have to go through. It's that simple. When in 
these times of struggles. If you want to get to the other side, you've got to get through. Adversity in those times away from the crowds are some of the best classrooms of learning. Sometimes God prepares us for service not so much in the glare of publicity, but in the gloom of obscurity. King David, he was out with the sheep. Joseph, he was in prison. Moses was in Midian. And Gideon, well, he was in a wine press for fear of the enemy. God always seems to find his servants and manifest his will, his will for his people somewhere, somehow. And I want you to be encouraged with that today. So as I close, I'll just invite the music team to come forward. just want to share with you a, a story before we finish up. And uh, it's from a book by uh, Bill Frey, or Bill Fry, I think his name is. It's called The Dance of Hope. He tells of a blind student named John, whom he tutored at the University of Colorado in 1951. One day, Bill asked John how he became blind. The sightless student described an accident that happened in his teenage years. The tragedy took not just the boy's sight, but also his hope. He told Bill... I was bitter and angry with God for letting it happen, and I took my anger out on everyone around me. I felt that since I had no future, I wouldn't lift a finger on my own behalf. Let others wait on me. I shut my bedroom door and refused to come out except for meals. The story surprised Bill. Obviously a change had occurred, as the student he assisted displayed no bitterness or anger. John traced the change to a challenge from Bill's father. The dad was tired of his son's pity party and ready for him to get on with life. He reminded the boy of the impending winter and told him to mount the storm windows. Do the work before I get home or else, the dad insisted, slamming the door on the way out. (coughs) Excuse me. John reacted with anger. Muttering and cursing all the way to the garage, he found the windows, stepladder and tools and went to work. They'll be sorry when I fall off my ladder and break my neck, John thought, but he didn't fall. Little by little, he groped his way around the house and finished the chore. The assignment achieved the dad's goal. John reluctantly realised he could still work and began to reconstruct his life. <coughs> Excuse me. Years later, he learned, ev- he learned something else about that particular day. Not about himself but about his father. When he, shared his, when he shared this with Bill, his blind eyes missed it up. I later discovered, he said, that at no time during the day had my father ever been more than four or five feet from my side. The father had no intention for the boy to fall or letting him fall. Your heavenly father, our heavenly father, has no intention of letting you fall either. You know, what is painful today will produce character tomorrow. You can't see him, but he is present, and that's blindsight. In those moments when you find yourself in the midst of the doubts and disappointments of life, as Israelites did too, what do they do? Remember this, carry on. There is a compassionate God who walks beside you, and for the believer there's the Spirit of God who dwells within you. When you're feeling discouraged by disappointments or disorientated by doubt, remember that as you emerge 
from your uncertainties. You may very well possess a heartier faith than before it was put to the test. As we move further into Exodus, (coughs) faith be encouraged and built, knowing our God is faithful and his plan for each of us is to bring us closer to him through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Some final words from 2 Corinthians, then we'll pray, then we'll sing a great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let us stand together and I'll pray and we'll sing together, Great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand. Father, we thank you that there is a greater good that comes out of discouragement and disappointment. We praise you that you are big enough and loving enough to handle our doubts. May we seek after you with all of our heart and find you. Help our faith to increase, Lord, and walk beside us in the valleys. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.